Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL. New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how it all affects our nation's future. This week, we'll discuss the deteriorating, and maybe some would say disappearing, congressional budget process, with a focus on how that's playing out in the current lame duck session. Our guest is Molly Reynolds, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution in Washington. We'll discuss with Molly why Congress doesn't do budgets anymore, what are the consequences of that, and are there any opportunities for improvement? Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson, himself a former staff member of both the House and Senate Budget Committees, will join the conversation. And then in our final segment, Steve and I will discuss the Fed's latest moves to fight inflation and the Biden administration's ongoing efforts to forgive student loan uh, repayments, uh, an issue that has found its way to the Supreme Court of the United States. First up is what's going on with the budget process. Our guest, Molly Reynolds, studies Congress at the Brookings Institution with an emphasis on how congressional rules and procedure affect uh, policy outcomes. She's the author of the book, uh, Exceptions to the Rule, The Politics of Filibuster Limitations in the U.S. Senate. That book explores the creation, use, and consequences of the budget reconciliation process and other procedures that prevent filibusters in the U.S. Senate. Uh, And we'll talk about that with Molly. She received her PhD in political science and public policy from the University of Michigan and her AB in government from Smith College. Molly, welcome to Facing the Future. Thanks for having me. Well, um, this is a good time to talk about the budget process because it's, um, you know, it's in the final throes for uh, this fiscal year before they can even start on the next fiscal year. So just... You know, with uh, briefly, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, Congress is trying desperately to to finish its appropriations work, which is not unusual. But uh, let's just you know back up a little bit. There's like a textbook budget process that we all learn, and people still ask me to come to classes and and you know explain the budget process or even talk to you know, new congressional staff or, or, or new, you know, last year I talked to a lot of, you know, new press people that were learning about the budget process. So everybody, so I've got this, all these charts that go through the budget process. None of it happens. <laughs> I, I, Bob, I get asked to do the same kind of talks. I similarly begin um, with a, um, with a, a walk through the, the, the calendar um uh and i always i always tell people that the sort of uh like the spoiler alert answer is that none of um congress sort of regularly blows through all of these deadlines and so we the process is supposed to begin um in um sort of the the winter um with the president's budget um arriving on capitol hill um 
that um, sort of that deadline um, sometimes is met, sometimes is blown through, particularly when we have a transition in presidential administrations. Both Trump at the beginning of his administration and Biden at the beginning of his administration were um, were late with that submission. Um, the uh, next deadline is um, the Senate Budget Committee is supposed to report um, a concurrent resolution on the budget by um, April 1st. Um, we can talk more about how the budget resolution itself, um, even when it is when it happens, is really not functioning in the way that the drafters of the Congressional Budget Act um, imagined. It really, to my mind, we see them now not um, as a meaningful effort by congressional actors to set a major blueprint for revenue and spending, but rather we see them periodically under unified party government as a way to unlock the budget reconciliation process, which allows for certain yeah, kind of legislating. I mean, the, the, the process that we all learned and now give that caveat when that I give the same thing is everything I'm about to tell you isn't going to happen. So here are the things that do matter. Um, and reconciliation is one of them that you can get to. But, you know, it's 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 supposed to, I guess, it's supposed to pass a budget resolution by April 15th, <clears throat> a joint budget resolution. And then there are a few other deadlines. But, you know, but so really, I don't know the last time uh, budget resolutions don't get done anymore. <laughs> And they, don't, they don't get done anymore for the again the kind of original intended purpose of them, which was to kind of force everyone to sit down and think at a pretty high level about um, revenue and spending, um, uh, spending in various categories. Um, also think about the appropriate level of the public debt. Um, the goal of the concurrent resolution on the budget, um, in the minds of the folks who put together the Congressional Budget Act in 1974, was to provide the sort of unified picture to, to, um, to sort of have this chance for um, folks to come to an agreement on what the big blueprint should look like. And that's no, even when we see um, a budget resolution, that is not what the purpose of the document really is. Um, it, the goal of the document now when it happens um, is, to my mind, in periods of unified government to unlock the ability to do um, budget reconciliation legislation. And that legislation, as we know, is so powerful because it can move without the threat of a filibuster. In the yeah, that's really the, that's really the key. I mean, the, the appropriations mm -hmm. process is, you know, supposedly uh, kicks off with a budget resolution that they set the the numbers. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on beneath the surface there. But so without a budget resolution that that has certain consequences for the appropriations process makes it more difficult. And as you said, the, the only thing that really, really matters about having a budget resolution is this uh, reconciliation process, if either side wants to use it, um, to uh, you know get get a big agenda through the Senate without without a, a filibuster. So, um, you know, bef before I bring Steve into this, who suffered through this process as a staff member at both the House and Senate budget committees, <laughs> I I remember, by the way, I, like as in 1998, um, sitting around with some budget veterans, which I wasn't at the time, um, and they were discussing the standoff between the House and the Senate, which. Um, actually were both run by Republicans and the Clinton administration. And it got to be like August and they hadn't done something. And I, I casually said, 
what happens? Maybe they just won't do a budget resolution. And and the people that I was with, the the wise veterans sort of looked at me like, oh, come on, Bob. I mean, you know, not they have to do a budget resolution. This is all just a, and, you know, what happened was they didn't do a budget, budget resolution, resolution yeah. and the sun came up the next day and, you know, the world didn't come to an end. And ever since then, they've been thinking about ways, you know, they can avoid doing a basic function of government, uh, which is the the budget resolution. So we'll, well, let's talk about the uh, consequences of that. Uh, Steve, um, want to bring you into the conversation on any perspectives you may have on this. Well, you know, as you point out, the, the, the budget resolution has gone from, you know, a blueprint that Congress enacts to determine tax and spending decisions on a sort of a bicameral, bipartisan basis and because of the you know, increasing political polarization, I mean, really the last three major budget resolutions, four major budget resolutions, going back to the Bush tax cuts, you know, the Democrats were opposed, so the, Demo- the Republicans used reconciliation to pass tax cuts. And you had you know, President Obama passing his health care proposal uh, with Democratic votes. You had uh, you know, Trump passing his tax cuts under, you know, reconciliation, then you had the Biden stimulus package. So in all of those instances, the, you know, the budget process was used through reconciliation to cut taxes and increase spending. And, you know, from, a, from a, I guess, from the Concord Coalition's perspective, you know, we would like to see, you know, a little more effort at, at bipartisan deficit uh, reduction. And the budget process, uh, the reconciliation portion of the budget process, as it has been used in recent times, has been uh, been used to, to, to only produce the opposite result. They, they've either cut taxes or increased spending. I mean, is it, you know, is, is there a way to restore the budget and the reconciliation process? There used to be what was called sort of the Conrad rule that reconciliation would be used for deficit reduction rather than deficit increases. And that that of course has 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 uh, has gone away, and you know I don't you know what's what are your, what are your thoughts, Molly? Is is can we ever return to the to the use of reconciliation to actually reduce the deficit rather than increase the deficit? Yeah, so I think when when I think about um, reconciliation and I think back to sort of it's over its history. Um, I think it's important to note that um, it's always been used as a way to, uh, even when it was used um, to enact um, bipartisan deficit reduction, it was um, there were still things that would happen in reconciliation bills that were important to the majority party. So um, in the in the Senate, so even over time, as it's be, sort of taken on this um, character of kind of the one neat trick that a majority has under unified party control to move something without um, the threat of a filibuster. Um, Even going further back in the history, it it has been this important tool in the toolbox um, of um, of the Senate majority party. What has happened over time, though, is that as it's become seen as the primary way to achieve party defining policy change in periods of unified party control because of how polarized the parties are and how hard it is for either party to get some members of the other party to um, agree to the things that are really important um, in its in its platform. A couple things have happened. One um, is that uh, sort of 
this nature of uh, reconciliation encourages boundary pushing. So we know that the reconciliation process is not unlimited. We have the bird rule, we have other um, rules, other aspects of the Congressional Budget Act that limit what can be done using the reconciliation process. But as it's become more and more responsible for things that are important to uh, majority parties, uh, it has encouraged um, uh, folks have tried to push the boundaries of what can kind of get put um, put into that um, into that box. Um, we've seen both under Republicans um, uh, in 2017, under Democrats in 2021 calls for a party majority to, for example, disregard the advice of the Senate's parliamentarian on what is um, and is not permissible under the Bird Rule. I think that really typifies this dynamic, this um, this boundary pushing. Um, it also, because there are limits on the process, it affects the legislative negotiating space in a way that is less true in some other regular order um, legislative processes. You can't negotiate over everything um, in the context of a reconciliation bill because there are restrictions on what can be included. Um, the other thing, and since you brought up, Steve, the, the shift to um, deficit increasing bills away from um, deficit uh, reduction bills is that that's also um, it's also changed the trade-off environment so when the when the legislative tool was largely used to um, reduce the deficit, there's this sort of notion that everyone had to share in some of the pain. So we'd see these reconciliation bills that named lots of committees in the reconciliation instructions. Lots of committees were contributing something towards the shared goal of deficit reduction. Every We just kind of spread that pain around. Now, as we've shifted to using the tool to in, for deficit increasing legislation, we have, we'll end up with sort of the cap um, how, by how much can this increase the, the deficit. And then there are um, much more, um, I think, uh, challenging fights across committees, across policy priorities about whose priorities are going to fit in fit in under that cap. Um, so it's um, it's creating different trade-offs in a way than where as before there, there was this mechanism to sort of share and spread the, the pain um, around. Do you think that you mentioned a, a kind of expanding reconciliation, pushing the boundaries? Um, do you think that trend is going to continue because I mean the parliamentarian is stuck with a very difficult job as you know as it's it's like water finding its way through something if it can't get through the regular process you know you use this process and you use that and the parliamentarian is you know I mean she's not elected she's yeah. got so uh, you I know I mean and it's like this you know bureaucrat and she's now having to make some huge decisions like uh, you know, can you do a uh, a minimum wage increase through reconciliation? As you pointed out, there, you know, there are things that you can't do. It's supposed to have a direct budgetary impact, not just a, a you know incidental impact. And and it it seems to me an a, an unfortunate byproduct of the what's happening that uh, somebody like the parliamentarian is having to make those kind of decisions. And as you, I think, also mentioned that the, if the parliamentarian makes a decision that the majority might not agree with, there's a lot of pressure to just simply ignore her advice and do it anyway. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, you, you gave the analogy of sort of water finding its way. Sometimes I think about this as a giant game of whack-a-mole, sort of whack down <laughs> one mole and it pops out somewhere else. Um, but I mean, I think that we're going to continue seeing the pressure that we've seen on the reconciliation process um, as long as we have the legislative filibuster um, and can sort of talk about 
whether and speculate on um, on its future. But I think as long as there is this limitation for the rest of the legislative process on um, uh, this sort of challenge of needing to overcome um, the 60 vote threshold to get things done, that's going to keep putting um, putting the pressure on um, on the reconciliation process. And so when I think about sort of whether and when the filibuster um, might go away, one of the uh, things that I like to remind people is that using reconciliation to achieve policy change also has really um, profound consequences for how we design the policies that we are um, we are enacting. Um, and so, you know, you can look at the experience with uh, by when Republicans attempted first unsuccessfully and then eventually successfully to repeal the Affordable Care Act's individual mandate to see that sometimes like you try to go through the front door with a policy choice uh, and then you, the parliamentarian says you can't go through the front door so you have to go through some sort of side door. So in the case of the mandate, it was rather than repealing it outright, they set the penalty for non-compliance with the mandate to zero, um, which um, I think, you know, anyone who kind of is interested in good policy design would say like, that's not the way to do this. Like if you wanna get rid of something, just get rid of it. Don't don't play around um, play around with the, the penalty to sort of achieve the same goal. And I think we can see other, um, other um, uh, examples of that as well. So I think for folks who care about, you know, how do we design the best possible policies that we can in order to achieve a given goal, um, I think that's another place where the really heavy reliance on reconciliation to make major policy change has um, been a real challenge. Yeah, because you get you get things that you get scoring gimmicks. I mean, you know, things that need to sunset or phase in very slowly that uh, drives budget people like us. Uh, I won't speak for you, but uh, being, I mean, for us, I mean, the Concord Coalition up a wall because <laughs> saying a, a bill that's going to cost blah, blah, blah. And you think, but, but they're assuming that it's going to go away in three years or it's not going to phase in until three years. So it's yeah. not really a... And it, it creates a lot of policy uncertainty for um, folks sort of all the way down the line who are um, going to benefit from things that the government is trying to do to help them. So I think when we think about the experience with the temporary expansion of the child tax credit, like this is a good example of to make, to sort of, meet both the political and uh, procedural needs of the reconciliation process. That expansion was for a short period of time. Um, like we can debate whether um, sort of the, the budgetary consequences of that, but I think what um, what's clear is that it came, it was helpful to people who needed it, and then it went away um, in a very short period of time. And that kind of, um, that kind of uncertainty for, you know, the people who the the federal government, who Congress is actually trying to um, help when they um, enact some of these policies, I think that's another consequence of um, of the reliance on reconciliation. I want to get into after the break, uh, just to tease a little bit here. We'll <laughs> stick with us here because after the break, I want to talk about another way in which water seeks its. Uh, <laughs> its way around an obstacle or the another um, popping up of a, of a mole and the whack-a-mole thing. And, and that is about uh, the increased use by administrations of, uh, you know, regulatory things, things that the administration can do on its own. And, and Steve will get into that. So what we're going to do right now is take our first break. This is, uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I are talking to Molly Reynolds of the Brookings Institution about the deterioration 
to put it mildly, of the federal budget process. We'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Chief Economist Steve Robinson and I are talking with Molly Reynolds of the Brookings Institution. She studies the government and government process, procedures, uh, regulations, all things related to the federal budget and, and how they lead to policy outcomes. And uh, we're talking about the breakdown of the, the budget process, which we're seeing play out in full force now in the lame duck session. We were talking about, um, you know, when the budget process breaks down the regular process, do you find other alternative ways of doing things? We talked about the reconciliation process, um, which is part of the regular process, but there are ways you can push the limits on it. Another way that has been happening recently is maybe the administration can find some way to do things through regulations and the student loan uh, forgiveness comes to mind. So Steve, do you want to um, talk about that and uh, tee up a question for Molly? Well, yeah, I mean, we, We've been talking a lot around here about the, the president's proposal with regard to uh, student loan, canceling student loan debt. Uh, there's another element of that that's presumably still yet to come, and that is the income contingent piece, where they're going to change uh, the requirements for student loan repayment based on your income. And presumably that would all be done through you know, executive order, through regulations, through the regulatory process. I mean, what what are the tensions there? I mean, when you know when Congress can't agree and you're in the White House and you want to get something done, uh, I'm sure the temptation is to to push the envelope and say, well, we'll just do it through executive action. But you know, they're now this is all playing out through the courts. You've got the Eighth Circuit Court, Supreme Court's now agreed to hear that case, where there have been challenges to administrative actions. You know, is, is, have we turned into a you know a, 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 we you know crossed a new line here where you know, Congress is dysfunctional, so the administration is going to take action on its own, and then we have to wait and see what the courts say about whether the executive branch can do what they want to do. I mean, you know, yeah, is this, I mean, is this we were, new? We were talking um, before the break um, about the kind of policy uncertainty that can be created by relying on the reconciliation process. I think the same is true here. And I think, Steve, your sort of uh, laying out of the current status of the um, president's proposal on student loan uh, debt forgiveness is a good example of this. So, you know, we have one piece that's been rolled out, but is now um, temporarily halted because um, it's undergoing a court challenge. Um, He's extended the uh, period um, where folks don't have to make payments because there's this court challenge. There's this announcement about um, income-based repayment, but we're still waiting to see what that would look like. So that's that's obviously a very uncertain policy environment that's being created in part by relying on, on the executive. Um, we also know that um, we have lots of examples of this where um, when you rely on executive action to accomplish policy change, one administration will do one thing um, and then a new administration will come in and roll it back. So that um, that creates uncertainty. And then the other thing that I'll say to kind of connect this back to the appropriations process, since I know that we want to talk about that, is I actually think that one in this sort of broader constellation of how the executive branch has become um, more powerful um, vis-a-vis Congress, one place where we also see that is with this um, increasing reliance on things like continuing resolutions and omnibus appropriations bills, which is that um, 
when there is sort of just the one big bill that everyone is working towards, it makes it harder for Congress to use the appropriations process as a mechanism for pushing back against the executive branch. If there's something in the executive branch is doing that Congress does not agree with, um, they, when we're talking about just one big bill, so really like you got to be willing to shut down basically the whole government to have this fight. Whereas when Congress was doing individual appropriations bills, sometimes we would see those sort of for a particular agency um, take where part of the conflict uh, between Congress and the White House would be around particular administration priorities. But it's simply harder to do that when um, the costs to Congress of not acting on, a, on an omnibus appropriations bill are so so you're saying basically the failure to follow regular order reduces congressional oversight of the executive branch? Um, among other things, yes, <laughs> that is one thing that it, um, that it does. A uh, frequent item on the reform list is the filibuster. We were talking about the reconciliation process, which is designed basically to get around a Senate filibuster. There have been a lot of suggestions about whether the idea should be rather than torture the reconciliation process, should we just get rid of the filibuster? Um, what are your thoughts on that? So when we look at sort of the filibuster over the long sweep of congressional history, um, we have seen over time kind of a slow chipping away um, at its power. So um, we have seen, for example, on the nomination side, the a reduction in the number of votes needed to invoke cloture first for lower court nominees and also for executive branch appointments in 2013. And in 2017, a reduction um, for in the number of votes needed to invoke cloture for Supreme Court nominations. Um, we've seen limitations placed on the amount of um, uh, time available for consideration of a measure post cloture. Um, all sorts of um, all sorts of kind of again slow slow um, chipping away at it. And so um, I'm of the mind that uh, it's really a matter of um, not if but when uh, the Senate chooses to um, to eliminate the filibuster. Buster. And I think that um, what we should think about is at what point will a Senate majority under unified party control have some kind of policy priority that they um, are in unified agreement on, think is um, important enough to make a fundamental change to the way the Senate works to get done. Um, and that's what will break the dam. Um, that clearly has did not happen for um, for Democrats in the in the two years um, when they enjoyed unified party control. It's uh, we can uh, sort of imagine what kind of issue might do that for Republicans the next time there is Republican unified control. But that's really how I think about it. It's, it's at some point there will be a policy that that the majority really wants to get done, and that'll be what breaks the dam. And we just haven't reached that point yet. If you repeal the filibuster. Just like you said before, the executive branch can do whatever it wants, but the next administration can come in and undo it. So you repeal the filibuster. That means you're in the majority. You get to do what you want. But that means when you're in the minority, the majority gets to do what they want and they can just undo whatever it was you did. I mean, I, I guess I'm a little less willing to believe that the Senate is going to repeal the filibuster outright. I mean, chipping away at it and making exceptions seems the more likely avenue, I guess, because... I mean, you know, everybody knows what goes around comes around and you're in the majority now, but you may be in the minority later. And do you really want to live with the consequences of your decisions? It just, I don't know. It just, it just seems a little, a little hard to believe. So. Yeah. And it could, it could be a, you know, we could be talking about 
far in the future. Um, mm. I mean, there were, if you think about sort of the history of the use of the, the debate around using the nuclear option on judicial nominations, like that was a very live issue in the mid 2000s. And then it took until 2013 for it to actually um, actually come to pass. So who's, who, who knows? Um, my my think, guess, and nobody can uh, hold me to it, is that it will be chipped away and finally done away with, but it might take 30 years for that to happen. But it's just like happened with the judges. First, it was, you know, it wasn't, didn't include Supreme Court judges first. And so I think the same might happen with policies. Um, before we go, I want to go back to the weeds a bit um, and just talk about what might happen in the current lame duck session. There's a, there's a possibility that they will not pass a funding bill uh, that meets the December 16th deadline, then they may kick it to December 23rd or something like that. Question is whether they're gonna do a full year continuing resolution, keeping funding at the same pace. Um, and there's a lot of speculation that they just won't be able to agree on any appropriation bills and they'll just keep things on an automatic CR uh, practically. Anyway, before we go, that's there are consequences to that. I mean, just from a governing point of view, there's some real problems with these long-term CRs. Absolutely. So continuing resolutions largely freeze past priorities in place. So if we rely on a full year continuing resolution for the rest of this fiscal year, for future fiscal years, um, that makes it a lot harder for agencies to start new activities. Um, if the continuing resolution is at the same level um, as it's been, um, that often translates into um, hiring freezes. Um, it can be hard for agencies to add new um, new staffs. Um, it can have lots of consequences for contracting. Um, when um, uh, when we have CRs and then sort of ultimately turn to um, to omnibus bills um, that can result in sort of agencies waiting to negotiate new contracts and then that um, in turn leads to the contracts being um, being bid up when we use CRs um, and then again ultimately do get an omnibus that um, leaves less time for agencies to make responsible decisions about the money that they are getting from um, from the bill. And then it creates downstream uncertainty for state and local governments and other um, other communities around the country who are really depending on these um, on these federal funds. And so um, continuing resolutions are, um, are a real challenge um, for agencies and then by extension for the um, various individuals um, and communities who who need the federal funds that are flowing through this this process. Yeah, it freezes in place. It can, it can prevent necessary cuts. And, and so, I mean, you, you know, it, it can freeze in place things that should be cut and it can prevent good things from, you know, growing. <laughs> yeah, and it, can, it just, um, it, it makes it um, difficult to respond to changing needs in both directions. So um, uh, by, by sort of keeping priorities locked into the last time Congress went through this process. Yeah, I mean, the prospect of three years of uh, CRs, I mean, really, I mean, Congress has got two things it's got to do. Pass the appropriations bills or to avoid a shutdown and raise the debt limit so we avoid a default. Uh, would be nice if they did it in the uh, lame duck session. Probably not. Probably going to be fighting through it all this year. But that's all the time we have for this segment. There are two things I wanted to ask you about. Uh, 
uh, earmarks and the debt limit, but we'll have to have you come back at another time to uh, talk about those things. Earmarks are good. The debt limit is bad. Okay, that's a good summary. That's my send off. Um, That's a good tease for the next one. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Steve, for joining us. Thank you, Molly. Um, Really a pleasure talking uh, to you about the future of the budget process. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I have been discussing the congressional budget process and the current lame duck session with Molly Reynolds, Senior Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. Steve and I will be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and I'm joined by Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson. We're going to be talking in this segment about some recent economic developments, things that Steve has been following very closely, including the Fed's efforts to uh, try to get a hold of inflation and uh, some of the more recent updates there and uh, see what's going on with the Biden administration's attempts to implement a student loan forgiveness program. So, Steve, um, you know, everybody's looking for the peak of inflation and uh, the latest numbers were down. If you look at it, it doesn't mean inflation is, uh, is at a low level, but at least the year over year number came down from a little over 8% to 7.7%. So people are saying at last the peak, the peak. So there have been other inflation numbers coming out, and the Fed is uh, expected to make another move on interest rates coming up uh, just in a couple of weeks. What's, uh, what's your take on, uh, is inflation coming down? <laughs> well, well, clearly the rate of increase has slowed. If, so if you want to call that inflation is coming down, it's, it's increasing more slowly than it has been. But you know, compared to recent history, it's still way above anything uh, that, that, that most people would like to see. The Fed has indicated last week that they're slowing their rate of increase. In other words, the Fed essentially fights inflation by raising interest rates. The interest rate they control is called the federal funds rate, which is the rate that banks lend money to each other on the overnight market. And the Fed had been increasing the Fed funds rate at basically a three-quarter of a point rate. So for the last three times the Fed met, they increased the rate by three quarters of a percent. So the rate is now in the range of about 4%. And so last week, the Fed announced that instead of doing another three quarter of a point increase, they're going to do only a half a point increase. The markets are taking that as good news that the Fed perhaps is coming to the end of its cycle of tightening and raising interest rates. Although Chairman Powell has suggested that you know, the end is not yet in sight that while they're slowing the rate of their increases, they may keep the rates higher longer than they originally had anticipated back last year. So, you know, I don't think we're out of the woods yet. You know, the rate of increase in inflation has slowed. The Fed has backed off on the pace at which it was fighting inflation. Uh, And I think the Fed is sort of taking a, a wait and see approach that, you know, we, we may have done enough. Monetary policy is sort of one of those, uh, I think there's the, the quote from Milton Friedman is that it works with long and variable lags. And so, you know, it's not entirely clear, you know, how quickly higher rates 
do the job of containing inflation. And, and we're in a very uncertain environment. You know, how much of inflation is due to, you know, monetary policy, how much of it is due to, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine and COVID lockdowns in China. So, you know, there's multiple factors that are affecting inflation. And the Fed only has one tool to fight both of them. The interest rate tool works better on monetary policy than it does on broader economic supply side issues. You know, the Fed is essentially saying, look, you know, we may have done enough. It's not clear. We see some slowing in the pace of inflation. That could be good news. We may be at the beginning of the, uh, or, you know, the <laughs> beginning of the end, as, as the Churchill, end. Quote, Churchill quote goes. I think it's still too early to tell. There are just too many wild cards out there. The war in Ukraine and COVID are both big wild cards. I mean, nobody knows how that's going to play out. And, you know, if you get another resurgence, you get more lockdowns in China, although they seem to be backing off on their sort of absolute lockdown policy. Well, that's so, uh, that, yeah. that's kind of like be careful what you wish for because they're not well vaccinated. And so exactly. what could happen is you get a, a, a country that suddenly there are people that can't come to work because they're sick rather than lockdown. So it could be that, that we still have a ways to go with that. Yeah, clearly there's a lot of unknowns right now. And I think it's just too early to tell. I mean, if you look at the financial markets, you know, short-term interest rates are now higher than long-term interest rates. That's what they call an inverted yield curve. And traditionally, inverted yield curves are signs of an imminent recession. Most people are, are discounting that. They're saying, no, that, you know, this time the labor market is still strong. But again, the labor market being strong and wages rising are, are indicators of, of continued inflation. And so the Fed is really, you know, they're trying to do a balancing act of containing inflation without causing an, uh, a recession. And, you know, the markets right now are giving the Fed the benefit of the doubt. I mean, the fact that the 10-year rate is, you know, it's now down to, I think yesterday was like three and a half, three point six percent 3.6%. And, you know, which is below the, the short-term rates. The markets, by that indication, think that in 10 years, inflation is going to be certainly, you know, at the target, the Fed's 2% target. And the markets may be right, but the markets are not always right. Another item that uh, that you've been paying close attention to is the whole effort to excuse repayment of student loans. Uh, there are a couple of different irons in the fire there, and one of them has worked its way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, what's the state of play on that? A number of plaintiffs brought forward cases suing the administration, claiming that they did not have the legal authority to write off hundreds of billions of dollars of student loans. And the case that appears to have the most legs was filed by, I believe there were six state attorney generals, and I think Missouri was the lead plaintiff. And they brought this case in the Eighth Circuit. And initially, the district court dismissed the case for lack of standing. They said that, you know, they were suing on behalf of the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority, MOHILA, I think is the acronym. And which is this sort of quasi-governmental, uh, state governmental agency that administers student loans and uses the money that it collects from the repayment of loans to make more loans. And so it essentially that entity arguably is being harmed that if you write off the loans, then they're not going to collect the loans and they can't use the money they collect to, to make more loans. Um, but but they're a sort of a quasi-governmental agency and they didn't bring the suit. The state of Missouri brought the, the suit on behalf of the entity. And the lower court basically said that, well, that doesn't work, that the plaintiff has to be the person who's harmed. 
and they have to bring the suit. And the state brought the suit on behalf of the entity. But anyway, the, the, the appeals court basically said, well, no, we're not quite sure that's right, that there may be standing. Moreover, the legal issues here are, are you know, they're very complicated and there is a likelihood that uh, the, the, the plaintiffs could prevail, that the authority the administration claims to have really, they really exceeded their authority and therefore, you know, they would win. And so anyway, the Biden administration Justice Department appealed to the Supreme Court uh, asking that, that the that the Supreme Court overturned the Missouri decision. And they've agreed, the Supreme Court's agreed to hear the case in February. So potentially we could know something in February, whether whether the Supreme Court rules that quickly, that would be, usually that's, they don't act that fast, but they, they very well could in this case. You know, that case is, uh, it seems to me, doesn't get at the, the real issue. <laughs> it's a very complicated case about standing. Right. Uh, and and really, the the issue is whether or not the Biden administration had the authority to do what it did. And I I, I mean, that the Missouri case has one theory of it. To, yeah, to me, I mean, this is all about, you know, the spending power and who has it and who doesn't. So, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of issues. I mean, uh, normally, you know, agencies, federal agencies, when they do things, the courts give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, but then there's this issue of what's called major questions doctrine. And so when the agency does something of huge economic and political significance, the courts are supposed to you know, apply a more stricter standard. Does the statute clearly give the agency the authority to do something that, that is of major significance? And you know, I would argue that when Congress created the student loan program, there was an expectation that students would take out a loan and they would repay those loans. Congress created very specific provisions that would allow under certain conditions students to not repay the loans. And that's the way the program operates. What the administration has basically said is that we have the authority to simply issue a blanket waiver or a blanket uh, you know, forgiveness program and, and categorically write off billions, hundreds of billions of dollars of loans. Um, the way the program is structured, the way it works under the budget, writing off those loans would be considered an appropriation. And the Constitution gives Congress the power of the purse and only appropriations or, you know, the, the, the executive branch can only spend money that has been appropriated by Congress. And, you know, the argument that I make is that the administration in writing off these loans are spending money that was not clearly appropriated by Congress. And therefore they've exceeded their statutory authority in violation of article one of the constitution. And, you know, I think I'd pointed out earlier that, you know, it wasn't clear the office of management and budget had ever publicly weighed in on this issue. And I noticed just the other day that the house education committee, uh, the Republicans on the house education committee who will be in the majority next year, they have sent a letter to the Office of Management and Budget asking them to retain all of the documents, uh, all of the decision um, uh, memorandum related to the student loan forgiveness program. And so, you know, I guess the question will be whether the House, um, you know, as it takes over the majority, the Republicans take the majority, whether they'll hold hearings and call the Office of Management and Budget up and ask them, you know, what did you guys say and what, is, what are your views from a budgetary perspective 
on the loan forgiveness and how does that you know how does that fit under the federal the federal credit reform act uh, which sort of created the, the rubric by which we score or, or um, administer from a budget perspective the student loan program so you know you know in my view the house of representatives is the you know they're the they're the plaintiff with the best chance of success in winning this case because you know the argument is they violated they the administration has exceeded their authority under the appropriations clause and the house of representatives has the authority there was a case back in 2016 where the house brought suit against the obama administration under the affordable care act and the lower courts basically ruled in favor of the house saying that yes, that, that the administration can't spend money that's not been appropriated. And the argument in this case is that the administration is about by writing off the loans, they're gonna spend money that's not been appropriated. And well, I think that, that I would love to see that issue briefed and argued uh, before the Supreme Court because it's a fundamental one. And, and as the appropriations process breaks down, uh, it increasingly, administrations of both parties are seeking ways to spend money or lower revenues through administrative actions. And that gets into fundamental constitutional questions. And it's um, teed up here, but we'll, we'll have to see whether the House takes your advice, Steve, and we'll be following that. But that's all the time we have for this week. So uh, tune in again next week when I'll be back with another episode of Facing the Future. <laughs>